Good evening and thank you for tuning in to York's political mashup. This evening we have a wide range of representatives from the parties for the start of the fourth season in the autumn term. We have Tom from the Labour Party. Tom, can you say hello? Hello, hi. We have Francesca, uh, who's coming on as an independent. Francesca, can you say hello? Can you say hello? Hello. We have Davy, who's joining us uh, as a member of the York Tories. All of them? Yep. And we have Pad Zellia Walker, who is representing the, uh, the Green Party at the university. Hi, guys. So we're going to start off by talking about uh, a very topical issue uh, concerning our listeners, which is students returning to university and COVID-19. So I think we're going to start off with Tom. Uh, so Tom, do you think that enough has been done by the government to protect, to actually prepare for the return of university students? And has the government done enough in respects of ensuring that students have enough support uh, throughout the st- from the start of this crisis, from the lockdown, and now uh, in this sort of fresh climate where they're go- having to go back to uni and their experience is going to be much changed in the sense that they're going to have to have online teaching instead of teaching which is in person. Well, I don't think it would be controversial for me to say that there's been very little support, if any, uh, surrounding students returning to university uh, across the country. Literally uh, hundreds of thousands of students have just been told to go back to university and deal with it. And I think that that's really... A horrendous approach for the government to be taking. Uh, I think that the measures that have been put in place, for, for example, with our peers at the uh, Manchester Metropolitan University, have all been reactive rather than actually proactive in uh, helping with student health, uh, both me- both physical and mental. And you you mentioned that it's uncontroversial, and <clears throat> there's been large numbers of reports. I mean, you, you name-dropped uh, Manchester Metropolitan University, which is one of the universities, and I think Edinburgh and Glasgow are also others. Um, do you think that what, do you think that the university should also take some responsibility in the sense that um, not enough has been done to ensure that uh, students have been informed about how they are to gain food and uh, do washing up uh, when they're told to self-isolate or do you think there's a broader responsibility that the government bears for the fact that they haven't thought through the implications of sending students back and then the uh, compulsory isolation that comes with uh, being having the coronavirus? I think that's uh, entirely correct. I mean, the way that the... Um government has handled this is that really universities shouldn't have to be in this situation. Universities shouldn't have to be uh, on the front lines of uh, looking after entire student populations, protecting them from a literal pandemic. Uh, I think really uh, way more should have been done by both national and local governments to actually ensure that Mm -hmm. students are safe and more important, well, safe and happy uh, as well as not spreading the virus. Uh, I really think that universities have done what they can given the circumstances but I really don't think that these circumstances are fair in the first place. 
What do you think you, uh, the government should have done which it hasn't done uh, in regard to preparing for students to come back? Well, it's an interesting question because um, obviously term doesn't start at exactly the same time and uh, different parts of the country have different uh, levels of risk uh, in terms of the uh, amount of uh, COVID cases in the area. Uh, so I don't think there can be a, a sort of blanket policy that would mm. work across the country, but rather one that should be flexible yet uh, clear to understand. Okay. I'm not going to pretend to be an epidemiologist and give yeah. exact uh, prescriptions on what the government should have done, but I really think that uh, I think working with uh, universities and student unions from the offset, uh, or at least in <coughs> over the last month, knowing that uh, term time was coming up should have absolutely been uh, a wider discussion than it was okay let's bring in Oliver uh, I mean what do you think how would you respond to what Thomas said about uh, the government and its lack of support for students um, in parts I agree I think there has been a lack of support from the government and um, there's been a lack of support from the health service from public health England and from the medical advisors and um, it's almost came around and it seems like they're just they just waiting for them to come back and they're waiting for the problems to solve itself um i mean what do we see now we have now we have currently three thousand students in lockdown and um that's not a significant number but it, it's not insignificant either and um but really i think what should have happened is that universities surely they knew more than anyone else the term was going to start they know how the accommodation blocks work. I mean, in York, we have many different accommodation blocks. Goodrick, you have to walk through other people's flats to get in your own flats. Langwith, different. Um, and what we see now is, um, you know, senior Tories going out for compensation. Um, we're heading for another term of online teaching, which, um, you know, hopefully we'll wait and see, and hopefully it'll be a good term. But if it's anything like last term, it was completely inadequate and, and not worth, quite frankly, £9,250. Mm. I mean, you speak about the uh, teaching being in inadequate. Do you think that they should, the government should compensate students for um, for their student loans in, in, in respect to the fact that they're going to be receiving student, they're not going to be receiving face-to-face -face tuition in most cases. I mean, some universities have even gone completely online. And you could say, well, surely, I think the government have said, well, surely it's the university's responsibility to give uh, reductions in fees. But you, many universities are already facing more financial difficulties with uh, less influx of students from abroad. So maybe, do you think it's maybe time now for the government to step in and say, actually, we're going to do our bit to help those uh, those younger people out who are having to face a lot of severe restrictions on their social life and disruption to their education? I think I think we've got to be very careful because over the tuition fees, like you say, there's many universities, I think there are 12 that are currently unnamed. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Reading's one of them. They're struggling financially, and the government's already said that it can't afford to support you know, every university should they go bankrupt or, or struggle. Um, whether it's come to a point yet where you know people were calling for compensation, I think we should go and see what the term brings. Um, but I think the serious questions the university have answered, you know, there's some of the bastards of knowledge in this country, and if they can't come up with an adequate teaching situation, given that that's their profession, then I don't think we can expect the government to do it for them. It's the universities who have to take lead here. Um, and, and quite frankly, the government can't micromanage everyone's lives. Okay. Thank you, Ollie. Uh, we're now going to 
uh, go and see what Francesca thinks. Um, I mean, Francesca, uh, we've spoken about uh, the government not doing enough in compensation. And Carl Hennigan, a professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford and a member of the SAGE committee, has said that uh, we should waive student fees. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this idea? Francesca? Uh, Francesca's not, seems to not be online at the moment, so we'll go to pads. Pads? Hello? Yeah, what are your thoughts on oh, yeah, um, sorry. Um, waiving compensation? I think maybe... Waiving student fees. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think if you, if you were to waive the fees for this year, um, I think... You might. You would also have to expect the universities or the government to compensate students for um, for the teaching they lost during the strikes last year. So I think obviously that uh, kind of sets the standard. Then, um, if you so start, they've got to be um, consistent. It's a unique situation, but there have been times in the recent. Yeah, I think so. I think if if, if students are losing teaching um, to any substantial degree, you need to either I think compensate in every case or never compensate. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, I think there should be consistency. And what what what's your view? Do you think that there should be compensation? Um. No, I, I don't think they should. I don't think they should. I think it's um because there's no reason why the teaching can't still be delivered to a high quality. I know it's obviously going to be online, but um you don't just pay for the teaching. You pay for many things like the resources, access to the the journals, and the the online library um, and it might well be but by the time uh, term two starts we might have um, a situation where students can be taught again in person so I, I don't think yeah. um, I don't mean just because the teaching is going to have to be delivered online means that um, it's, only, it's of any less value I mean Tom spoke a bit about how uh, the government should have done more in terms of preparing for students going back to university I mean, and then Oliver spoke a bit about how unis themselves should take greater responsibility. Do you think that universities like York should have already set up their own testing stations? I mean, the, the Vice-Chancellor of York, President Charlie Jeffrey, has said that he thinks the 500 tests that are available through the York Council, which is 500, will easily be absorbed by both uh, York St John and York University once all the students are back. Uh, me, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, I do I do think the universities should have taken uh, a more proactive approach to preparing for the return of students. I think, like, um, I haven't looked into how extensive the government guidance was, but I think uh, universities are obviously wealthy and um, uh, wealthy institutions with with a large capacity for uh, for making most for working out what the right decision would be and they've got a lot of expertise in those sort of areas so I think yeah it could have been that um, I'm not saying the universities have done nothing but I think uh, they could have potentially done more to, uh, to prepare themselves okay I mean let's go to Tom again I mean Tom the Labour Party have argued that consideration should be uh, should be taken to pausing the return to unis uh, okay. because of the problems are occurring. What's your view on this? 
Well, it seems that for many students, uh, there is no proper advantage to being on campus. If anything, there's an added risk uh, to the public health of not only the student population, but also the population, in our case, of the city of York. Students make up 10% of the city of York's population, so having a sudden influx of that amount of people in the middle of a pandemic would undoubtedly have a huge effect on the uh, public health situation. So I really think that there is a, a fair point to be made there, and that not everyone needs to be on campus if everything's being taught online. Not everyone needs to be back in York. Uh, it seemed like rather the case that international students were told to come back to the UK and prepare for you know, another term, another year of university, when really they've had the rug pulled out from under them and they're now mm. forced to just sit in their student flats uh, on their laptops instead of actually fully engaging with the in-person yeah. experience. I mean, you, something you could do from yeah. anywhere in the world. Yeah. But I to mean, go you back to... Sorry, can I quickly go back to the previous yeah, question on. that you asked uh, Pat? I don't think that universities can really be blamed for not having testing sites set up when there are no tests available. I think that if testing was as widely uh, available as it was promised to be, then sure, the university would be an excellent place for uh, uh, the facilitation of testing of our own student population. But there just aren't enough tests available. Like you said, 500 uh, tests in the city of York is, mm. is hardly any. Yeah, well, I so mean, yeah. If, if the government had like fulfilled its promise to have these tests available, uh, which, uh, which is a promise they've been making for the last seven months, uh, t again to no avail. Uh, I really don't think the universities can be shouldering that much of the blame if the physical tests themselves just do not exist. Yeah, and I mean, you spoke about how not all students have to be on campus. Um, you know, given where where do you think you would draw the line? Like, where would the because obviously for many students they don't as a large part of it's gone online. I'm sure there are many students who are paying for accommodation, and then a large share of their courses are online, so they don't technically need to be on near the campus. But it's that social aspect of university which they're also paying for. So, do you think? When when you said about not all students need to be on campus, where do you think where where do you think the cutoff would be made? Would you say that international students maybe shouldn't be encouraged to come back? Or I, I don't think the question of whether or not they're international students is the point of concern here. I think different courses have different expectations, and you wouldn't expect a chemistry student to be able to do their experiments at home over their kitchen sink. Uh, you'd want to get what you're paying for uh, by uh, doing that on campus with the appropriate facilities. And I think the same applies for other courses as well. Uh, I study social and political sciences, so there's nothing that needs to be done in person, there are no practicals. Um, I think that's I think ultimately we come to university for the course, uh, which I think should be the most important. Okay. Um, hello. hello. Yeah. 
Ollie, what, what, what would you say um, about uh, considerations of pausing the return to uni universities? I mean, do you think that the education as a whole for young people has been put on hold for too long? I mean, you spoke about how uh, over the summer you didn't believe the teaching quality was adequate enough. Mm -hmm. And it looks like attempts have been made, I mean, personally having gone on to the VLE for York, it looks like attempts have been made to improve online <clears throat> teaching. But do you mm -hmm. think that it, it gets to a point where you just have to think, you just have to say, well, we've got to carry on education from now. We can't allow disruption to carry on and just have to live with the virus and try and uh, try and carry out more tests at the same time because of the damage it do. will do to young people's prospects. I do, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think the problem with Labour calling out for, um, as they did the other day, for universities not to return and, and to well, re reverse well, return or well, the, the well, delay well, and stuff. Yeah, well, to clarify, they're calling for a consideration. They're not calling for the delay. Or They're saying there should be well, a consideration I, of pausing. You see, that's arguably worse because... If there was a call for pausing, what well, it's already happened, and now they call it a consideration of pausing for something that's already happened. So they're two steps behind, if you like. Um, look, I think most universities have gone back now, and um, and most freshers' week, if you will, though obviously not in the normal sense, have, have started, and most of them have actually ended. Um, just to come back to the other point, I think over internal testing now, we see Oxford, Cambridge, Warwick, Exeter, all have internal testing capabilities for the university for their students run by the university. And so the university has worked hard to make the test available. Why hasn't York done this? Why is York relying on the test from the council? Why is York relying on the tests that come from the people of York? Why can't we use our labs, use our expertise and test our own people on campus? It'd be much easier and much more sensible for students, most of whom obviously don't have cars. So even if they had symptoms, wouldn't be able to go and get a test. They would have to rely on others to go and get it for them. Um, I just think that many universities, York included, unfortunately, haven't haven't prepared well enough, and perhaps they expected it all to be over by now, but you know it certainly isn't. Um, coming back to the other point, looking at the VLE and and, and some of the work, I, I do think it's got better than um, than the last term of, of last year, um, but I think we have to wait and see, you know, what it's going to be like, and I'm afraid that over you know tuition refunds, though personally I, I don't think I'd like to see them because the more damage it does to universities. Um, I think the question may become bigger and, and, and louder if if the teaching isn't adequate. Um, and I think hello, Ollie. Hello. We, hi. I think we lost you for a bit. Uh, what were you? Sorry. Did you we lost me halfway? Yeah. Uh, where, where did I get up to? Yeah. Uh, what Hello? was your final point? What was your final point? I just over testing, and um, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, Warwick, and Exeter all have internal testing capabilities instead of relying on the local councils. Whereas York at the moment is relying on 500 tests, which is you know, council. Um, when really we should be testing our own students, yeah. and um, and I hope that teaching next term after after looking on the VLE is better. Um, but if it's not, then I think the the cause for tuition refunds is just going to grow louder. Yeah. Okay. Before we move on, we're going to go to Pads. Finally, I mean, Pads, what do you think about uh, potentially pausing the return to university? Uh, 
Um, I think it should be um, a matter of individual choice. I think if students feel um, that they're in the position to return to university and to live the sort of, uh, I suppose, the slightly different uh, lifestyle that might entail, then they should have the opportunity to do that. Uh, and likewise, if, if students would rather study from home, um, obviously for international students might be more practical, then I think that should be an option as well. But I do understand that um, if that was the case, I'm, I'm not sure in terms of numbers, how many students are required on campus. Whether or not a certain number of students is required before a course and go ahead, I'm not sure if that's an issue. But I think in principle, at least, that's that's what I'd like to see. Okay. Right, let's move on now to discussion of the Brady Amendment and further lockdown restrictions. So, so Graham Brady's uh, this coming Wednesday putting forward an amendment uh, that will require, if successful, Parliament to vote on new powers that the government gives itself. Um Tom, what do you think about this amendment? I mean, so far it's uh, been... It's believed that it's gained the support of more than 42 Tory MPs. And I believe that so far the Sky, the news outlets have said that it's only set not to, to be successful because of opposition votes. So what's your thinking behind it? Uh, well, unfortunately, um, as of about an hour ago, uh, the Speaker, Lindsay, Hale, uh, Lindsay Hoyle, has uh, announced that he won't be accepting the amendment. Uh, has he? Has he? Yeah, that's un- uh, well, that's, so that, 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 that scuppers that, that discussion, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> well, I think we still discuss it as a, as a um, I think the general point is that uh, MPs are members of Parliament. They represent parliamentary constituencies they represent a specific geographic area and I don't think there's any way to be even sorry let me just uh, sorry the way that uh, our parliament works in its representative sense is that uh, the MPs are in tune with their local constituencies Parliament, in that case, should have greater scrutiny over the new COVID restrictions because it affects their local populations. And as I said earlier, uh, the pandemic is not currently a a blanket situation. Different places have different situations, um, including with, uh, as we've seen through local lockdowns and uh, just entire regions of the country being shut off. I think that uh, because... MPs are in such a good position to understand their local needs uh, as well as be directly accountable to uh, their constituents uh, that MPs should have a greater degree a greater degree of responsibility and a greater degree of oversight in uh, further measures I think it was good yeah. that, uh, it was centralized in the beginning and that the Sage Committee and the government were able to quickly react uh, in some cases but I think that now that the uh, now the, the spreading rate has decreased from what it was at the very beginning, though admittedly on the rise again, uh, I think that it's time that we look more towards uh, how local populations vary and how the risk can be considered uh, on a more individual basis rather than as a national concern. Yeah, I mean, um, Steve Baker has spoken about the risk of the future infringement of people's liberty um and he was one of the key mps behind the bill 
Um, I mean, do you think, Tom, that there's much appetite for a second lockdown in terms of one which was similar to the first one? Uh, no, I don't think there is a huge appetite for that because the government messaging over the last four months has been, OK, get, that's all over and done with. You know, Get back to work, go and yeah. eat out with your friends, go and uh, revive the economy and be as active as we were before. And that's completely counterintuitive to uh, all that we know about epidemiology and all that we know about uh, how COVID spreads. So I really do think that um, the question isn't about liberty, but about the government itself just being highly contradictory. Uh, and again, like I said, reactive rather than proactive in mm. its responses. I mean, Pads has had to leave us because he had to run off somewhere halfway through, but he spoke about citizens taking responsibility for their own actions. And I suppose in that sense you could frame the idea of liberty and you could you could say, well, shouldn't it be up to each individual citizen whether they decide at this point, now that we know a lot more about the virus, which we previously didn't before the first lockdown, do you think now it should be up, citizens should have a lot more freedom as to whether they take the risk as to going into pubs and restaurants as to whether they contract the virus? Or do you think there should still be uh, a collective responsibility amongst us all to try and, uh, to try and defeat the virus in the long term? I think that the responsibility should be uh, more collective because it's not a matter of uh, personal choice about whether or not you fancy getting the virus. Obviously, nobody wants to. Uh, but even if you think that you'll be healthy uh, after going through it, the main risk isn't to yourself. It's to people who are more vulnerable than yourself. It's to not giving it to vulnerable people, people who were shielding at the beginning or uh, have pre-existing health conditions. It's not about uh, going out and saying, well, you know, I don't mind if I get sick. I don't mind if I stay in bed for a week yeah. or so and have a bit of a nasty cough. No, it's like, will your actions literally result in somebody else's death? Mm. Uh, and that is a very likely possibility and one that I think should still be uh, kept in mind uh, with any future decisions. Okay. Ollie, let's bring you in. I mean, Ollie. Do you think that the COVID-19 restrictions have now gone too far in terms of limiting people's freedom uh, and their ability to lead their lives without having to confine themselves to their house and to not meet up with their friends? It's, it's a tricky question. Um, though, you know, the ideology, ideology of the Tory party, if you would, would, would seem to support that. Um, I think you have to look at the here and now. And, and like Tom said, you know, we do depend on each other's action. It's almost a community spirit now where um, the I can't take an individual risk because it's no longer an individual risk. You know, it'd be a risk to my household and, and further households that they mix with and, and so on and so on. And down the line, it's bound to find someone's, you know, grandparent, someone's um, relative who's ill or, 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 or vulnerable. Um, I'm just sorry, I'm just reading about the uh, Graham Brady Amendment and it seems that the Speaker's not choosing it because um, it breaks um, some parliamentary rule over... over um, amendments to the motion and stuff but it's the sort of thing I think the house should probably be passing now because though um, the government gave itself all the powers at the start um, through votes through parliament um, you know the bills are very um, sort of vague and um, and it was more emergency legislation than anything else so 
so they could have the effect in the here and now. But obviously, after now we know more about the virus, we have more time, we know when's probably the best time to lock down. Um, I think it's the right sort of bill to be passing. Um, however, I think you know all these ideas and um, and criticisms, if you will, of the government isn't coming from the opposition. They're all coming from Tory backbenchers and um, almost doing the job of the opposition who should be out here saying, instead of we just agree, which obviously I think most people, even the Tory rebels agree with the uh, measures taken um, to, you know, in the North, in the North East and stuff. Um, there's always room to say, maybe you should be doing this better. And it's sort of the motion we should be seeing from the opposition. Um, but unfortunately, I mean, Tory backbenchers had to take it on their own Yeah, I mean, skin. you speak about the opposition not, you know, providing effective scrutiny but Tom made a point earlier about how it wasn't a question of liberty but about the government just not be not providing coherent policy effectively and do you think Starmer's been critical of the Tories u-turning and I mean Tom spoke about how you know you were told one thing then we're told another then we're told another I mean do you think part of the problem is that people have lost faith now in the government's COVID-19 response strategy because there's been U-turns over masks, there's been U-turns over the exam fiasco, there's been U-turns over going back to work and now staying at home. People don't know whether they're coming or going. And so it just looks like the government are just playing it as it goes along rather than there being a planned out strategy. So, so yeah, I think there's been um, many U-turns. There's also been many changes in policy. So the U-turns, if you like, over, over exams and stuff like that, I, I actually disagree with them. I think the government would be too weak. Um, and I think that's a problem for, for Tories to sort out, and it's probably a problem that the opposition should should try to exploit, quite frankly. Um, I think the changes in policy, where it be regarding to mass social distancing and, and things like that, and obviously now where we see countries going on the free travel list and off the free travel list constantly, is just down to the fact that we're in an evolving situation. It's not a, a problem like Brexit, where it's, to an extent, obviously, quite black and white. Um, this is an evolving situation, and government policy has to evolve with that. Now, obviously... The Labour Party will pass it off, and opposition party will pass it off as U-turns. But I think for the government to come out and say, "Well, you know, now the scientific um, evidence supports the wearing of masks," but to avoid Labour Party criticising our U-turns, we won't bring out the masks. You know, this is a sort yeah. of ludicrous policy when it comes to. I mean, let's go. Let's go back to Tom. Tom, what do you think about the new 10 p.m. policy curfew? Because it seems to be that through you know social media isn't the most accurate. Uh, sort of way of communicating what's actually going on and the impact of policy but it seems to be that after 10pm most people are still uh, congregating in large groups just outside the pubs or everyone's leaving at the same time and public transport is even busier and more crowded than it previously was so what do you think about the effectiveness of that policy and also whether it's the right thing to do in respect for business Well, um, the support for uh, small businesses over the last few months has been, uh, again, totally inadequate, but uh, I'm glad that there's some degree of, of business and uh, openness going on. I, I'd rather that there were a 10pm cut-off than no pubs at all, uh, which would just ultimately kill hundreds, if not thousands of small businesses across the country. Um, in terms of the risks uh, generated by a 10pm cut-off, like you were saying about uh, you know, more uh, busier um, 
public transport and things like that. I think that's we'll have to wait and see how people actually respond to it in person. I, I don't think there's much point speculating on how people would go to the pub uh, without knowing the exact uh, public opinion on and like the sort of in the now thinking um, of going to the pub and the sort of appetite for doing so. So I, I think maybe it's yeah. difficult to say. I mean, do you uh, think this the right extensively thing? about gathering outside of pubs and mm. about uh, you know buses being too full uh, when really it's we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, I mean, do you think it's the right thing to do to bring in curfews? Do you think do you think if the science dictates that that's that's what should happen? Do you would, do do you agree with the policy? I've seen quite a few memes about how. Uh, COVID-19 just suddenly stops working after 10pm, which I think is obviously (laughs) quite a funny point but one that uh, should be considered in that. I think the curfew's a fairly sensible idea uh, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you you know, let's get to Ollie. I mean, you referenced you referenced the loss of jobs and you know, uh, Tim Martin who's the boss of Weatherspoons has warned that the effect of the new curfews is going to be even more devastating and that smaller venues have already closed down. And Kate Nichols, who is the head of a lobby group called UK Hospitality, has spoken of how 900,000 workers are already, there was already storm furlough and now their jobs are at risk because there's no incentive to bring them back if the working hours are reduced mm-hmm. and there's this uncertainty. I mean, Ollie, what do you think about the fact that the cure for the virus in bringing these curfews could be more costly, uh, both in terms of health and you know economics. They're both linked to for people in general, for, for a lot of people in the hospitality sector. Yeah, so I, I've said before that um, the job of government during this crisis is to is to balance the health against the economic, because you can't take one or the other. Because as we know, obviously, if we go into a deep dark recession that we struggle to get out of, and many people lose their jobs. That, that has a Im- health impact to to that. Um, I mean, on this um, 10 p.m. curfew, personally, I, I don't think I agree with it. I I see the idea behind it. I mean, um, the Prime Minister explained it about how um, through using track and trace, they found that many people have been catching it um, after a certain time where people tend to be more more drunk, more lapsed in decision-making and, and things like that. But obviously, we've seen surges in cities. So interestingly, not all cities, Liverpool and uh, Newcastle didn't see I haven't been seeing surges at 10 p.m. But I mean, in London and even in York, we've seen surges at 10 p.m. for people leaving bars and pubs and, and whatnot. Um, so I think the policy is found in good faith, but it certainly needs to be relooked at. Um, so we're now going to move on to Brexit. Uh, our, the topic that used to dominate uh, the show before COVID 19 came along. Um, so we'll go back to Tom as there's only two of us now, Francesca had to leave because there was connection problems. Um, so, Tom, what, what were your thoughts on the internal market bill? It, it passed through its first hurdle in the Commons, uh, and what was your general view on how it breaks international law in what Brandon Lewis termed as a specific and limited way and its implications for Britain's standing in the world? I mean... What is there to say, really? The, U- the UK government, in the same day 
as saying that, uh, as Priti Patel saying that she would crack down on COVID criminals in the very same day, uh, intentionally and knowingly and deliberately breaks international law uh, in its, I would say, bungled attempt to uh, get through an obstacle that everyone has known about since the very beginning of uh, way back in 2016 when we voted in the first place, um, which is about the Good Friday Agreement and the massive obstacle that causes uh, to relations with not only uh, the Republic of Ireland, but the European Union in general. Yeah, I mean, you spoke about the Republic of Ireland and uh, interestingly, uh, Joe Biden, who um, is the presidential candidate uh, and is supposed to be in a debate against Donald Trump soon, he's spoken about how if the UK uh, infringes upon the Good Friday Agreement, and his chances of striking a deal with the US uh, is very much slimmer. Um, I mean, do you think that is an example of him speaking out? I mean, obviously it's not for certain that he's going to win that election, but do you think that the fact that he's come out and said that suggests that uh, there are long-term implications of breaking international law, which will affect the UK's ability to strike other trade deals and be what the Tories term a global Britain? Yeah, I think that's honestly the effect of discarding an agreement that was worked on for so long and has been, uh, to be honest, like nearly entirely successful uh, since its implementation. Um, I don't think that we could ever risk uh, going back to uh, a dis- well, to disrupting the peace in Ireland. I don't think that should ever be an option on the table, but it's one that has, uh, that the government has taken a gamble with. I don't think it should be something risked like that. I don't think it should be something subject to international power plays and trying to, you know, the the United Kingdom's government trying to assert dominance over the EU by just flat out ignoring one of the most important pieces of legislation over the last 30 years. Yeah. Uh, Let's come to Ollie. Ollie, I mean, what's your view on this uh, internal market bill? Uh, do you think that it's the right strategy? I mean, some some news commentators uh, or politicians in the Tory party have said that it's necessary due to the EU's uh, doggedness in, in terms of the fact that it's not been willing to back down in terms mm-hmm. of the negotiations. Do you think that it was necessary to start threatening them with this internal market bill in which we basically don't abide by our obligations in the withdrawal agreement, or would you, or would you uh, echo what Tom has said about how how damaging it is? Well, I think it, any case, whatever happens with Brexit, we had to have an internal market bill. There's no getting out of that fact. Um, what it is essentially trying to do is protect the integrity of the UK single market, the UK internal market, um, which is you know been around since the um, the 1800s, uh, the 1700s. Sorry. Uh, what it's trying to protect is our integrity and it's trying to prevent EU going to extreme and unfair lengths because let's be honest here what the EU are doing with Northern Ireland and it's not about protecting the um, the Good Friday Agreement or, or as you know the official end of Belfast Agreement because this doesn't this wouldn't com- this doesn't break the good, uh, the Belfast Agreement in any way whatsoever um, 
the EU are using Northern Ireland as a political football to their own aims. What they want to do is hold the issue of Northern Ireland up so the UK will give in an area, other areas such as fishing, which are extremely important to you know Tory voters and also people who voted to leave the EU in the first place. Um, the EU are going to lengths where um, we've seen that they're prepared to put the UK on a third rating for food. So effectively, UK um, food exports will be banned from selling, uh, being sold in the EU. And we would have to impose tariffs on all goods going to Northern Ireland. So the UK wouldn't be able to sell, or Great Britain, sorry, wouldn't be able to sell its food in Northern Ireland. And it would threaten Northern Irish food supply, which is a historic problem anyway. Um, and... Um, I mean, the EU negotiating bad faith is, in effect, breaking the withdrawal agreement themselves. So if we're coming to the conclusion that they're negotiating bad faith, the withdrawal agreement is null and void. Um, I mean, to talk about how, uh, you know, international power plays, I think Tom talked about how we should keep Northern Ireland out of international power plays. That's exactly what the EU have been doing since the start of negotiations. And the EU break international law or so-called international law all the time. Um, they have hundreds and hundreds of WTO um, rules put down on them, which they blatantly just disregard, um, you know, each year, hundreds of them. And uh, and even some of the trade agreements of other countries around the world. So I think when it comes down to it, the UK, we'd only be breaking international law if, you would, if the bill was actually enacted, which mm. just by passing through the House doesn't do so. Like what, and what's the UK an, what's does... an example of a, a law they break then? Like an international law, the EU. Yeah. Yeah. So they. So basically, the the World Trade Organization will give down um, rulings over and sort of almost like a, the European Court Justice and um, it's like a central court arbitrate, and um, they'll pass them down and say, now you have gone over a quota in trading to a certain country, and the EU ignores that and it doesn't pay, um, doesn't pay damages to other countries. It doesn't reverse policy for extra years it just ignores it because they can do because they think they're such a a, a massive player on the world stage mm. let's bring it's in tom. Let's, let's bring in tom tom how would you respond to the comments by ollie because your views are very different on this i would question whether or not the rulings of the world trade organization uh can really be directly compared to a deliberate uh, breaking of britain's own laws uh, that would possibly put uh, lives at risk in Northern Ireland and risk, um, well, I, I mean, you can talk about the uh, sanctity of the internal UK market as much as you want. That doesn't mean anything if, uh, <laughs> if economic activity in Northern Ireland ceases up completely or uh, in the case of the actual bill itself, uh, infringes upon mm. the devolved right of Scottish, Welsh and Northern yeah. Irish governments uh, for their own spending uh, mm. because it indeed centralises the government's ability for uh, public works uh, which goes beyond just the Good Friday Agreement but also uh, a general <laughs> the general consensus on uh, devolution and the right of countries within the United Kingdom. I mean Tom, do you think the problem a lot of those, a lot of critics of the bill have, is that the EU can break WTO rules, but the fact is, is that uh, uh, the precedent that this sets is that Britain, Theresa May, and then formerly Boris Johnson, uh, latterly Boris Johnson, they negotiated this deal for Britain itself, um, 
and then it looks as if though they 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 negotiated in bad faith and the eu doesn't negotiate the wto rules it doesn't directly have a negotiation with the other the other member states about how they set the rules and surely the problem that emerges from the the internal market bill is that other nations other potential trading partners are going to look around and in the negotiation think how are we going to be certain that this deal we're going to strike isn't then going to basically be put in the bin just because it doesn't align with what the incoming future government wants to do is that the problem well i think there are two problems there actually in the first uh, first instance you said that uh, it's Britain negotiating against the EU in this case. I, I don't think that's 100% true. I think it's more England negotiating against uh, the European Union because, the again, the devolved governments of uh, Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland have had very little say in it, uh, which is some, you know, very little say in something that mm. directly and profoundly affects uh, their economies. But I suppose for techni- technically it is... Technically, it's not England. Yes, it's the yeah. it's the British government doing yeah. so. But I'm saying that's on the ideological basis. Yeah, I understand the point. One yeah. that's very England-centric. Mm. Uh, and I mean, if we are the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, I think Northern Ireland should be uh, a pretty big priority in the list of things that the government has to bear in mind with its Brexit negotiations. Mm. Okay, uh, I think we're going to finish with uh, like moving on to discussion of the trade UK, the UK's trade deal with Japan. Uh, I mean, Ollie, what, what what have you made of this deal that Britain has struck with Japan? I mean, it's uh, estim- they estimate that th- th- they still need the full details of it, but it's estimated that zero point zero seven percent increase will result from it to British. Uh, to Britain's GDP, mm-hmm. and it will increase trade by fifteen point two billion. Uh, I mean, is this a sign that uh, the scaremongering about Britain not being able to do deals, uh, do more comprehensive deals, uh, has been proven wrong, or is it, or does the fact that it's only a minimal increase in British GDP demonstrate that actually the priority is the negotiations with the EU? And by leaving the EU, our actual net gain is minimal uh, as a result of not being tied to the bloc. What What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think the deal with Japan just goes to highlight that, yeah, you're right, the, the UK doesn't need the EU to make its own deals on, on the world stage. You know, we're, we're the fifth uh, largest economy in the world. And we've got over 40 trade deals that are um, either being signed, like the one with Japan, and, um, and currently ones with Switzerland that are um, ready to come in on December the 31st, uh, which are technically just rollover ones from the ones we had the EU. And many of them, like the ones in Japan, have gone further because what the UK is able to do as this global pi- player is to tailor the FTAs to our own economy. We don't have to now um, work with 20 others, uh, 27 other member states, which, um, for example, like Belgium, which includes uh, um, a region called Wallonia, which... Um, consistently blocks many free trade agreements like like the Canadian trade agreement because they they no longer have a an economically viable farming sector um but yeah the, the, the deal with Japan means that now 99% of trade between the UK and Japan will be free trade and i think it's a very cynical way to look at it 
perhaps as um, a 0.07% increase GDP, because what trade deals allow, what free trade allows, as Britain's proved throughout our entire history, is that it allows for growth in trade. And actually, the initial sort of starting point isn't what we should look at. It's the difference that it'll make to people's lives. It's the difference to make it live to um, a, a man or a woman who starts a business, um, a small business, who now can grow it, knowing that they can send things to Japan on the, just the other side of the world, which you know, 20 years ago would be a million miles away. But now it's just as easy to trade with Japan as it is, you know, France or Germany or any part of the EU. And um, what we've seen, in fact, that, you know, I talked about Britain may, uh, managed to tailor these FTAs to our own economy. Now we have British fintech firms who uh, don't have to pay the expensive fees to set up servers in Japan and do the work from Britain, but exporting services to Japan. You know, that saves so many businesses so much money. Um, in financial services, which is 28% of all our exports to Japan um, and, and a huge industry and a huge employer in Britain in, in ways that many of us don't even recognise. Um, we will now work with the Japanese regulators to come up with new um, new laws, new regulations around the world and also reduce the friction between Japan and the UK. Now, um, Japan, the UK and the US are the three massive um, financial service sectors in the world. So if we can do that, this opens up opportunities for other countries. And I think um, also uh, a, um, uh, a part of trade that is often overlooked is the um, the sort of geopolitical um, element of trade where that's in a region, Japan sits in a region where um, Chinese influence is growing and where um, other influences of countries that may, that don't really have the same worldview as Britain and in the future could become um, sort of, um, more uh, not enemies but but bigger rivals um and it's nice to see britain for once standing up by itself and putting its arms out to different parts of the world where we have kind of shared shied away from in the last uh, 50 or so years or since we joined the eu and um especially with us joining the uh, the T the tpp um trading alliance with uh, the likes of canada australia mexico japan you know these are some of the countries that do share our worldview mm. and um trade no matter the economic benefit has a political benefit and a, a, a security and defense benefit as well okay let's bring in tom tom what do you think about this uh, deal japan i mean do you think it's a sign of things to come with other potential deals we're going to strike with uh trading nations or do you think it just shows that the actual changes themselves aren't substantial and that Brexit wasn't really worth the gains which the leavers said they would be in terms of increasing our trade uh, our, our, our trade network and partnerships. I think it's almost tacky for the government to present this as a massive win for Britain, a massive uh, show of force in the global Britain project. I mean, it, it's, it's good that... Uh, we can now sell cheddar to Japan for slightly cheaper, but does that really make up for the massive loss that we'll get from uh, no longer being a part of the free and common market of the European Union? I, I really don't think so. It's a 0.07% increase uh, over our GDP, which, bearing in mind, isn't going to go very well uh, during 2020 for very obvious reasons. Um, and Japan just makes up 2% of Britain's trade. It's not a huge partner. It's not going to have a dramatic influence on people's lives. Uh, a, a point was made earlier about how Britain can be further connected financially with other big players globally. And yes, that's true. But does that really impact anyone's lives? Or does it just mean that the 
banks in the city of London are just going to uh, <laughs> get even richer uh, with no effect on the way that people live their lives in Britain. Bearing in mind that Brexit wasn't promised uh, on on the things that it would do for Canary Wharf, but rather for how it would change uh, common people's lives. I really think it's tacky for the government to be presenting it as a huge win for Britain and a huge uh, life-changing trade deal when really it is uh, fairly negligible in terms of its GDP effect and also in the exact products uh, and particular market forces surrounding those products Mm. in both financial and physical senses for Britain to have. Yeah. Well, unless you two have anything more to say, I think we've done a good uh, job. Only, qu- only quickly, if I could. Yeah. Okay. Come in. Yeah. Go ahead, Ollie. Uh, it, it, it is. And it, uh, Tom talks about how it's not life changing for the for the normal person. It's only for Canary Wharf and and the city. Um. But this is a very labour way of looking at a, a trade and then the way money moves around the world. That helps individual people in Britain to, to buy their houses, to start the business. And one part of the, the scheme, which goes much further than we had under the EU, is that if I wanted, or anyone in this country wanted to go and work for Japan, our visas would now be settled in 90 days, and we could take our spouses and our dependents for five years to Japan. So if a builder wanted to go from the UK to Tokyo, they could take the spouse and the dependents for five years with their visa that's life-changing for some people so this is the way that trade opens up new markets and the way that japan you said makes up two percent of of uk trade that's exactly why we have to have a better free trade agreement because we have to increase that it's you know the third largest economy in the world and it should be there for the taking yeah and before we finish tom would you like to come back to that well it's nice that we can have you know visa-free work or you know effective visas uh, for working in Japan, but on the other side, we'll lose out on 28 countries uh, in, within the EU. So, do you think? Well, do you think? I don't think. Yeah. As choosing to move to the other side of the world uh, is really a, much of a uh, with our closer partners in Europe. I mean, do you think? I think well, I, I imagine what some Brexiters would say is they'd say. Would we definitely lose? Are we definitely going to lose out on those twenty-eight members? I mean, I suppose it depends on whether there's a no deal or not. And I think this is quite a good place to finish. I mean, what are your thoughts, just succinctly? Uh, I mean, we'll go to Tom and then Ollie. Tom, what do you think of the chances of a no deal at this point? It's looking pretty likely, but I think that was always the strategy, and no deal has always been predicted as going off a cliff edge. And I don't think that prediction's really changed much. I don't think that the Japan deal uh, is much more than a puff piece compared to um, the absolute disaster that we've had over the last years, the constant flip-flopping, and the fact that uh, there is no such thing as a WTO-style Brexit or one that would get us internationally competitive because that's just not how international trade works. We're choosing to leave a block which has provided us with untold benefits to risk it on our own uh, at a time when the global economy just doesn't want that. And Ollie? Um, I do think there'll be a deal. Of course there'll be a deal. Um, The EU are famous for making their deals. They're famous for stopping the clock at the last hour. 
the famous four, um, I think in Canada they call it a, a Brussels negotiation where you just give in at the end. Um, there's certain areas where the EU just hasn't got any arguments left over fishing, um, and these are the areas that are sticking up. Um, of course there'll be a deal, and I look forward to reading it. <laughs> Not. Yeah. Okay, well, I'd like to thank Pads who had to leave earlier and Francesca for attempting to connect, and then for uh, Tom from the Labour Party and Ollie uh, for having a very good debate about really important issues uh, which I'm sure will not go away um, and I'm sure we'll be back again uh, next week discussing very similar things in terms of Covid although it does events do move by very quickly and I'm sure the Brexit saga will carry on so thank you guys for coming on and thank you. Uh, I look forward to the next show thank you